You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, let me start by saying welcome with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity and hunger for learning enough to check out the back catalog and listen to some or maybe all of the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Mark last week where we discussed the recent decline in commodity prices, the initially perceived hawkish comments from the Federal Reserve, and the difference between trading narratives versus, versus trading price action. And I invite you to check it out if you have not already done so. Rob, always great to be back with you. How are things in the UK at the moment now that we're heading into the holiday season? Not quite as good as they, they could have been because there was a possibility that last Monday we would have had a, a release of COVID restrictions, but that was postponed for a month. So now we're looking at mid-July for that. But on, on a personal note, I've had my second vaccine. So I'm now fully inoculated against everything. And when things do start opening up, so for example, sporting events like, like say the Euros, to go to that, if you've got your second vaccine, then you're kind of just waved through in a sort of VIP queue. So I'm looking forward to that once once those sorts of things start happening. Yeah, I did see your tweet about the uh, the vaccine, and I said in 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 gist, of course, a little bit that you know, do you get the tenth one for free? Because I'm sure you're going to have all these boosters. And then I was thinking maybe also you need to be a little bit wary of if after you've been there a few times getting your jabs and they wave you into a specific lounge where you can relax like in a bed or something and maybe it even says that you know oxygen will be provided uh, and all of that stuff so <laughs> just be careful Rob with, with all of that. <laughs> now before we get into all of the good stuff for market reps and, and stuff like that I just want to give another shout out this week we had another great set of reviews and ratings on iTunes, which I always ask for, not always, but often ask for. And I do it because they really do matter in the way the algorithms work. So we greatly appreciate it. And this is why I want to mention people doing it for us, such as Suslov, Jay Krubin. We have Ginish. We have Silver Lover. That's a funny name. And Captain Underpants. I'm not sure about that one. But anyways, it was a five-star rating, so I'll take it. And these are coming in from countries like Spain, Australia, United Kingdom, Portugal, the US. So all around the world. And that is fantastic. And we so much appreciate that. Do keep them coming. Take maybe five minutes out of your time to help us out. And we certainly appreciate that. In terms of a market wrap this week. I mean, it did seem to me as though the federal, you know, the Fed governors and presidents all came out weighing in on the, what seemed to have been kind of hawkish comments, or at least that's how they were perceived the previous week by Jerome Powell. And it seemed like there was a mission to kind of dampen the bearish interpretation that investors have taken from Powell's statements and the negative impact it had on the markets. Ironically, you could interpret comments from the Atlanta Fed, I think it's President Bostic, and St. Louis Fed, Bullard, to be even more hawkish than Powell. Bostic suggested that the first rate hike could come next year, and that open market purchases tapering could begin in a matter of months. 
While Bullard was not nearly as explicit as Bostick, his comments were nevertheless interpreted as decisively hawkish. Despite all of the talking, investors reversed course this week and pushed the S&P index to new all-time highs. Also this week, we saw that the two-year, 30-year yield curve flattening that had expanded the week before, and that reverse course, about half of that came back into line. So now we have a difference between on 1.89% between the two durations. But perhaps the biggest market news was the annual rebalancing of the Russell's indexes. They took place Friday when stocks are moved between the Russell index like the Russell 2000 and the Russell 1000 based on their size. It's the reason why, for example, that the volume yesterday, Friday, was over 16 billion shares, which is the highest level since we've seen in March. Now, I noted a comment from Jefferies and Company that today's reshuffle lowers the quality of the Russell 2000 components to the lowest level since 2000. In other words, there are now more money-losing companies in the index relative to money-making companies than at any time in the past 21 years. The index's largest component is now AMC Entertainment, the meme stock, which has been losing money for seven straight quarters. And money losers tend to be high beta issuers, so the index volatility could well rise from here. And this is, of course, interesting, as this is a questionable quality that we're getting into this, and it's happening near all-time highs for the Russell 2000. Of course, next week, we're going to see the second quarter or the end of the second quarter, and on Friday, we're going to have the June employment report from the US. So it could be an exciting week. But let's talk about you, Rob. What's been going on? What have you noticed? Big picture stuff in the last few weeks? Yeah, just actually add a couple of comments to what you just said, because a couple of things sprang to mind there. So one was just thinking about last week's podcast and this idea of narrative investing. Now, the problem with a sort of being a narrative investor at a time like this is, as you say, all these central bankers are all saying different things and no one really knows what the narrative is. And, you know, that this Fed watching is, is a whole industry, isn't it? There's a whole industry of people who kind of read and interpret all the speeches and even, you know, watch the press conferences. And you, you'll remember, Niels, when there was all this attention on what kind of tie that Mario Draghi was wearing during his <laughs> press conferences. That's how, how detailed this thing gets. So I'm, I'm quite relieved that I just have to, or let the, the computer just looks at the price and I don't have to w- try and interpret and understand what all these people are saying in, in such huge detail. But yeah, the index story is interesting as well, because I'm wondering if there'll be potentially a move to change the way the index is constituted and the rules of the index. I don't actually know exactly what the rules of the the Russell 2000 are, but I'm just thinking of, you know, way back in the early 2000s in the UK, we had a big discussion because we had these huge tech um, stocks. And I think the the biggest company was Vodafone, which is a mobile phone Mm. uh, company. And they were, I think at one point on strict market cap basis would have been something like 13 or 14% of the index. You know, which is a huge overweight in a, an index of 100 firms. And they actually changed the rules of the index and said, you know what, we're going to limit the size that any individual company can have. Now, obviously, the Russell 2000 with 2,000 shares, you know, it's probably never going to be that extreme. But I, I do wonder whether if this sort of weird market action continues, the, the people who construct indices will, will start to think about potentially changing the rules on those. So, so yeah, I found that interesting. It's obviously been an interesting month, and in in a way, I I kind of um, wasn't on during the most interesting week, which of course was when, well, listening to you guys on the podcast had a a similar pain that I did in that 
there was one day in the middle of the month when all my positions pretty much went against me and I actually lost four and a half percent on a single day, which for me is a pretty chunky loss. But uh, actually looking at, at my P&L for the whole month, it's a sort of respectable up um, 69 basis points. So, you know, that, that loss has just disappeared into, into the ether, effectively, and just glancing at, at some of the markets that, that kind of make that up. So my biggest winner was actually the, the Swiss stock market index, the SMI, some US stocks, um, the S&P and the NASDAQ also up there. Biggest money loser, platinum. And you'll be pleased to know that I made a profit of exactly one basis point in Bitcoin this month. So, so far, so my new short position in Bitcoin, which I opened up quite recently, is paying, you know, big bucks. So I'm very pleased with that. And over the last week, just as a sort of straight comparison with you, so given that the middle of the month was was terrible and I'm up now, it's unsurprising to hear that the last week's been very good to me and I'm actually up 1.9% over the last week. The biggest winner there actually was crude. So an interesting month, lots of ups and downs, but at the moment the trajectory is up, you know, gently upwards, which is, is fine with me. Yeah, no, I mean, that's actually pretty good for sure. On our side, most of the markets that struggled during the previous week certainly returned to their longer-term trends, mainly things like equities, currencies, and in fact, on our side, the Dow Jones contract and the Mexican peso contract were actually the two best markets for us this week. Energies uh, continue to do well, and the sell-off actually that we saw this week in long-dated bonds also contributed in a positive way for us. Grains were still under a bit of pressure, I have to say, which led to losses within our trend-following strategy. But on the side of metals, they were slightly positive. Now, the biggest loss came from lean hogs, like it did last week. And you could say that after a flying start to the year and a 50% rise in the price in lean hogs since December, prices have now dropped about 20% since June 7th. So, Clearly, pigs don't fly after all. But anyways, the trend barometer also moved a little bit higher this week. It closed, though, at a pretty neutral level of, I think, 41. So nothing uh, too dramatic at the moment. So we'll see how that all turns out. In terms of volatility trading, there certainly seem to have, we've seen, you know, the uncertainty in the market to a large extent disappear this, or did, yeah, disappear this week. We saw upside implied volatility in the S&P really got crushed. So the 30-day out-of-the-money calls now sold for a little more than 9% annualized implied volatility, which really equates to a, a lackluster move of, of about 1.2% per week. So very tiny. The call writing flows were particularly strong on Monday, with most active call strikes being traded by 41.50 and 42.10 on the S&P. This once again shows that investors seem to be more comfortable with riding options when implied volatility is low or cheap than when it is high and expensive as the call riding activity has picked up significantly recently in comparison to last year. Also, the VIX term structure steepened substantially over the week where we now have VIX at 1539 and then we have the front month's future at 1770 and the second month's future at 1963. Overall, the developments of this week were actually pretty good for our volatility strategy, and it gained about 2.5% for the week and is up for the month. Now, for my own trend-following model portfolio here, where I can go into much more detail, it was a slightly positive week, but it's still down about 1.98% for the month, and then it's up about 11.72% percent for the year so far. 
performance this month is split between Group 1 models, so classical trend, um, doing best up 1%, and then a small loss in the Group 2 models, and then of about 70 basis points. And then the most damage is coming from Group 3 models. These are the fast-reacting models, and they're being whipped around at the moment. They're down about 2.2% for the month. In terms of sector attributions, equities and energies are doing really well, pretty much the same. And on the losing side, we have currencies, bonds, precious metals. And when we drill down to the single market, some familiar fa- uh, names compared to Europe, Swiss market index still doing best, followed by NASDAQ. And then on a joint third, we actually have light crude, the SPY, so the Australian stocks and Brent crude. And then at the bottom, the US 10-year notes are coming in because they are part of the fast-reacting model, so they're being whipped around. And then the DAX and the British pounds. In terms of trading this week, the system started the week getting out of some long DAX positions for the fast-reacting systems and also reversed short, actually, for the US 10-year note. And sorry, I let me just do that again. I'm just looking at the sheet here. So the DAX certainly got out of some long positions and then... It reversed a short position in the US 10-year note to a long position. That's what I was uh, trying to say here. This was all happening in these fast-reacting Group 3 models. And then it got out of some long lean hawks, you know, early on in the week. So it didn't suffer the full uh, brunt of the move down. And then for the rest of week, the week, it only did one more trade and it was a short entry in the Japanese yen. So it really was a quiet week. And to give everyone an idea in terms of the risk, how that's evolving, the risk to stop. So if everything gets stopped out on Monday, the model will lose about 11.7%, which is pretty much unchanged from last week where it was 11.36%. All in all, less than 10 trades. And for people listening in last week, you'll remember that I mentioned that because of all the exits we've seen or at the mo- this month, the portfolio has become incredibly concentrated with very few themes and the exposure really is focused on equity markets and energy positions and only a few other markets are in a position right now. So that's what's happening in my little model portfolio. I can't resist saying, Niels, but I was actually, yeah. I'm actually short Lean Hogs, so I made money in Lean Hogs last week. Yeah. So Lean Hogs really saved my bacon. You could say that. I could say that, yeah. And Sorry. of course... Uh, <laughs> Enough pig jokes, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think we've done enough for that yeah. this, for this week. But anyways, yeah, it's interesting to see how relatively small markets can have a meaningful impact, which is great to see. Now, we've got some really great questions in and quite a lot of them this week from Robert, Kyle, Andreas, Michael, Redwall, Ricardo and Elder. And I think we probably just want to dive into them. But I do want to mention a message I got from a gentleman called Michael where, uh, first of all, I will say, Michael, I appreciate your kind words about the podcast, but you went on to recommend that we should bring on a certain guest, a certain e-mini trader onto the podcast. And I just want to explain to you why that's not going to happen. Firstly, and I'm not saying that this is your motive, but I do get a lot of suggestions every week from people who just want to promote their own stuff on the podcast. And I'm not interested in doing that. And when I looked up your suggestion, all I saw was flashy headlines on a website trying to promote trading courses, and this is why it's not going to happen. I do, however, really love when people introduce me to some interesting guests that would be a good fit for the show. Now, secondly, I also want to say something other in terms of the guests that we try to bring on and and what we're trying to do with this particular podcast series, and that is 
I'm not, and and I think it goes for all of us. We're not really interested in 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 how to trade a specific market. That's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is to help everyone embrace the mindset and the philosophy of trend following, because we know it works and we know it can help all of our listeners. We want you to be able to build safer and better performing portfolios, and I don't think day trading is going to help you with that. That's just my opinion, but I wanted to give you that explanation. And while I'm at it. I want to just mention something that's going on the YouTube channel at the moment because I do upload these episodes on YouTube because some of you prefer them uh, to be listened to, consumed via YouTube, and that's great. But what I've noticed is happening is that some people will start very quickly after we upload them to start a conversation or or, or make comments. But to me, they all seem to be able to, or they all seem to kind of know each other or be part of the same scheme. Because the conversations will lead one of them or several of them asking contact details for a certain guru that they think can make them a lot of money. And uh, I do my best, by the way, to delete all of that stuff. I don't think it's, I think it's fake and I think it has a negative uh, motive. But of course, I may not always be successful in, in, in doing so. So I think there's a lot of scams going on and there's, some of them are very elaborate. So just be careful out there. Any Anytime someone suggests that there is a guru out there that can make you millions, you probably know that is not real and shouldn't engage in any conversations on that. And that's certainly something I don't want to promote at all with the podcast. So Anyway, Michael, I hope you understand why I'm not going to act on your suggestion, but I do, as I said, appreciate your kind comments. Now, with all of that said, let's move on to some great questions here. The first one coming from someone called Robert. Now, I don't know, Rob, if that is you in disguise. I think I think I could come up with a better disguise, actually, than using my Yeah, own name. I know. I know. <laughs> But a lot of them always start, oh, you wrote just a wonderful blog post, Rob. So I'm starting, to, won- I'm starting to, to wonder. Anyways, here we go. First of all, thanks for your most informative and also entertaining podcast, which provides such valuable exposure to high, res- highly respected and also veteran industry professionals. I've been a loyal listener for more than a year now. So we appreciate that, Robert. Here are my questions. There are actually two of them. I already run a portfolio of ETFs, equity indices, bonds, gold, and also GSG commodity ETF no Bitcoin yet, using trend-following principles. And I think that the 60-40 portfolio risks to be at or close to the end of its useful life. I would like to diversify into commodity futures, also with trend-following, but fall somewhat short of the $1 million account size that is often recommended as the minimum to achieve proper diversification. Would you agree with this minimum? And if not, what would it be? If you consider a lower limit doable, what would the market selection rules be? Should I exclude equity indices as I'm already exposed, but not on the short side? So that's kind of question number one. I'll just continue. Maybe we tie it all together. Regarding market selection rules, I ran across Perry Kaufman's work using the efficiency ratio to select markets that trend more than markets that are more mean reverting. For a given look back, the efficiency ratio divides the difference between the last close, point B, and the first close, point A, and then divides by the sum of all the daily close to close differences, the path length to get from A to B. If a market goes up in a straight line, the efficiency ratio is 1. If not, the more the market zigzags, the lower the efficiency ratio. As long as the principle of diversifying across different market types is maintained, currency, interest rates, metals, agriculturals, 
would it make sense to use the efficiency ratio to select a reduced set of markets to work with a smaller account size? I thought that I had sent the same question, but of course differently worded a while ago, but could not find it in my outbox. Great. Okay. So first of all, thanks very much, Robert. And by the way, he does reveal that he's from Portugal. So I think you're off the hook here, Rob. And before you answer or give your take on this, I will mention that people, uh, that everyone can go back and listen to Perry Kaufman. We actually had him on the podcast. I think it was Moritz and me who did the conversation. Maybe you were there as well, Rob. And he's just a great person to to listen to. So with lots of knowledge, of course. So Rob, let's address some of these questions for, for Rob. Yeah, I mean, the, of course, the issue with futures is that they're, they're quite large objects and you can't really divide them into smaller objects. And actually, interestingly, I, I did post something, on my, I've been posting on my blog recently about this particular problem, right? How do you make the best use of a, a small account size when you're trading futures? And actually, there was a comment that came up yesterday, which was this guy saying, you know, the futures markets are crazy. Why don't they do what the stock, you know, the stockbrokers are doing, which is offer fractional shares, just to say, well, let, let's offer fractional futures. Because at, at the moment... You know, effectively, certainly in this country, what's happening is that you have CFD and spread bet brokers who are essentially offering that service by, you know, offering a smaller contract size, but of course at a cost because these things are much more expensive to trade and the brokers are rubbing their hands and making lots of money. And the futures exchanges, you know, <laughs> if they want a piece of that action, then they should be doing the same. And I guess the launch of the micro Bitcoin future, which we've, we've talked about ad nauseum now, is perhaps to move in that direction. And and there are, you know, mini and micro futures in, in quite a few contracts now, but not in all of them. And in some of the contracts, you need to have, you know, quite large amounts of capital. So the, there are futures that are that are smaller and there are, there are futures that are larger. I've actually got a list up here of, of all the futures markets in my kind of wider universe, which includes one I don't, ones I don't actually trade at the moment, but I'm thinking about trading. So for example, the micro um, e-mini S&P is quite a small contract. Trading that with the same level of risk that I use, the same risk target that I use, right now you would need only about $10,000 in capital to basically support that that position. And the margin requirements would be considerably less than that, of course, but but you know we're, we're sensible guys. We never go to our margin limit, right? But then, of course, you know, the other end of the spectrum, you've got something like the full-size DAX contract, which is, you know, requires roughly about a quarter of a million dollars of capital. So you've got that fact that there are all these things are different sizes. Then you've got this question of what adequate diversification is. Is it, for example, having, you know, say just one contract in every asset class in every sector? So is it enough to have, say, you know, one one grain, one energy, one metal, you know, a vol contract, a currency contract? Or do you need two or do you need three? I mean, where's that limit? And the other thing that, that comes into this equation is this idea of, how closely you want to worry about being able to target your risk, which is a very controversial topic and actually was discussed on, on, on a clubhouse yesterday. I, I was just listening, not speaking yesterday, but I, I heard a lot of interesting different views about what you know what constitutes the best way of volatility targeting, of course, from our good friend Jerry, as well as from people on, on the more quantity side of things who are doing a great job of representing my views, so I don't feel the need to chip in. But if you do want to try and do some level of risk targeting of your position, some level of position sizing with respect to risk, whether that be at the inception of the trade, as, as Jerry prefers to do, or throughout the trade, as I prefer to do, then ideally you, you don't want to be in a position where you can only hold one contract. You want to have be in a position where you can actually vary the number of contracts you need to hold. And I've done some research suggesting that if you can only hold, say, one or two contracts, you're probably going to be losing a fair bit of 
potential performance as well as having much lumpier kind of risk than you'd want to have and you know potentially we were talking about you talking about concentrated positions earlier so you're obviously gonna have more concentrated positions than you would perhaps like to have so you know this is quite a hard problem to solve and actually i'm in the process of trying to write down an algorithm to 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 basically solve it because up to now i've relied on kind of rules of thumb and sort of trying to pick contracts that make sense and so on and so forth. But it it is actually, it's possible to write down an algorithm to solve. You need to make some assumptions. I'm not going to go into the details about it now because it, it'll go and you know, eat into the question. But the the answer is that I would say that you could probably, especially if you do as, the, um, as Robert suggested, if you say, well, I'm not going to bother with equities and maybe he's got anything that he's already got in his ETF portfolio, he's going to say, well, I don't want to double up on that so much. So if you take those out, that helps you a bit, but not too much, because actually the equity indices tend to be not massive size. You could probably run a carefully selected one um, contract per asset class with about $100,000, very roughly. So that's a kind of finger in the end. But, and it, you know, and th- that would not be ideal because you'd probably be only holding one contract and you wouldn't be able to adjust your risk very much, but you would be able to get something there. Now, obviously, the more money you can add to that, the more diversified your portfolio is going to be. So my own individual uh, futures trading account is about half a million dollars, something like that. And I've got 37 futures contracts in there, and that's fairly well diversified. You know, the, and the, but that's uh, that involves doing some slightly weird stuff and actually probably more realistically, I probably should be looking about 20 futures with that kind of money, I'd say. And yes, when you get to a million, and I think that's probably, I think that's the figure that Andreas Kleiner quotes in his book. He says, you know, you need at least a million dollars. I think that's where this magical million dollars comes from. Then you're going to have fairly adequate diversification with a reasonable number of contracts in each asset class and the ability to do some some risk sizing. So, so yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, we often say on this podcast, if you've only got a very small amount of money, you're probably better off handing that over to an external manager if you can. If, if you meet the minimums there and there's some if you've got a million dollars you're probably going to be fine and there's a big gray area in the middle i mean it's not it's not a kind of i can't tell you yes you need exactly four hundred and twenty eight thousand two hundred and ninety five dollars and 16 cents to uh to have to be trend following properly anything more less than that isn't enough it's not like that you can't be that precise i want to pick up on a couple of things you said before we go to the second part of the question one is that and you, you mentioned this thing about for many investors, it probably makes more sense to allocate the money to someone, not maybe not just because you can get the full diversification straight away for a small amount, but there could be other reasons. And I was actually reading a book about, and I'm pretty sure it was Joel Greenblatt, which is like, you know, one of the really famous investors. And from memory, I think it was said that he at some point had started a new venture where he would actually allow people to see all the trades or the the positions they should have and then they could choose to implement it through his brokerage firm or they hand it over to him and they would do it in a fund and i think and this is a really from memory but i think what the book said that there was a big difference in performance between what those who have chosen to do it themselves ended up with and what the fund where they were doing it for them. And a lot of that was, of course, people deciding not to do a trade or do a little bit too much of it or a little bit too less of it. So so, so there are more reasons than just this thing about can I do it while we sometimes say to people, well, you know, you need to be really dedicated to do it day in and day out in order to get the full benefit 
of a trend-following system. So that was kind of just a comment to what you said. I thought it was very interesting. The other thing was just a quick question, Rob. If people don't trade futures, how easy or how difficult is it for them to do the short side of trades? Now, we had a discussion with Jerry about equities, individual equities versus versus uh, just trading the equity index futures. And I mean, I'm not involved in any single stocks trading. We, we don't do that at Don either, et cetera, et cetera, in our trend following. And of course, I buy into the argument that we often hear that if you were instead trading all of the equities in the S&P 500, instead of just trading the S&P 500, you would get more diversification. I think that's true. Even as I, I mentioned on, on, on this in a conversation you, you also participated in, that there could be other things like a lot of noise from some of the markets that are not moving so much that will cost you money. And then someone else brought up a good point, which I think is often forgotten in our conversation, that that is, well, hang on, there is a cost to borrowing stocks to go short. It's not free and it's very complicated yeah. and, and so on and so forth. So in this case, I know that uh, Robert is not talking about single stocks. He's talking about, I think, an ETF in general. But can you actually get short exposure via ETFs in 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 maybe not all single markets we trade in futures, but you know to cover your kind of exposure if you want to replicate a trend following strategy? I mean, obviously there are explicit short ETFs, right? And there are sh leveraged short ETFs, and you know that they're, they're pretty funky. That they've got risks in them that, that you really need to understand before you buy you know buy them, which is like selling effectively. But but especially the leveraged <laughs> it's ones, weird. Yeah. yeah, of course you can um, short ETFs like any stock because an ETF ultimately is just a stock, right? It's traded on a stock exchange, which means you can borrow it and you can sell it short and then you can buy it back after a period of time and hopefully make a profit. And actually the most liquid ETFs are all very easy and very cheap to borrow and short. So something like, you know, SPY, which is the you know massive S&P 500 ETF, you, you can buy and sell and short that almost as easily and pretty much as cheaply as you can the S&P 500 futures. But that's not true of all ETFs, of course. And the mechanics involved in being able to short things do make your life more complicated and more difficult. So, you know, and also the, in terms of backtesting, you need to factor in borrow costs, what were they historically? So it can, it is a whole level of complexity. But at the end of the day, what we're doing here is making compromises, right? Because in an ideal world, we'd just be able to trade everything, futures, any size, nice and simple. We could trade single stocks as futures as well, which, you know, they'd all be liquid. It will be very straightforward. We wouldn't have to make any compromises. We'd be able to go long and short all day long very easily. But that's not true, of course, because we we don't have futures in everything we'd like to. To get more diversification in single stocks, we may have to trade the actual stocks. So that makes life more complicated. We may not be able to go short, which means we're going to be giving something up. So it's just a question of trying to understand what, you know, for example, if I can... Is it better, for example, to have a portfolio that's very well diversified, but where I can't go short? Or is it better, to, which, you know, could be perhaps an ETF portfolio where you don't want to, you know, you can't or don't want to short? Or is it better to have a portfolio of things that is more concentrated, but where I can go long and short? And I could probably do some maths and tell you that A is better than B. But the fact is, they're both compromises and they both have pluses and minuses, right? And clearly, at an extreme level, it's probably better to have a large portfolio of diversified ETFs where you can't go short than to, say, take the same amount of money and use that to trade one futures contract. Okay, I would definitely prefer the former to the latter, much as I love futures. But, you know, ultimately, if you've got so much diversification, that's going to be much better and much safer than having a highly concentrated position where you can just go short. Yeah. So, you know, 
It's the, you know, I, I mean, I have myself a portfolio of ETFs, which is long only, which but which I do use trend following rules on, and therefore. When I've got a bearish signal, I'm not going short. I'm just closing. I'm, I'm just reducing the position signal. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but of course, it's never going to be as good as the portfolio where I could trade all of those things long and short uh, as futures. But that's you know not necessarily open to everybody or, or, or what you want to do. So yeah, and of course, we don't know what the future holds. I mean, we could continue another 10, 20 years in a long-term bull market in some of these markets. Yeah. So who knows? Now, the other question that Robert brings up is yeah. this Perry-Kaufman efficiency ratio, um, which is an interesting one because it touches on, in some ways at least, when I heard him explain it, where I think he uses like the last 60 days trading to select which markets to trade live in his portfolio, it does touches it does touch on uh, optimization for sure yeah. and over optimization perhaps so i wanted to hear your thoughts on that i mean first thing to say up front is i love perry i love his work you know he's probably done more than anybody to to sort of actually bring a systematic approach to technical analysis for example and to actually test things out and stuff so yeah. so i want to say that right up front but on the other hand, I also like Jerry, and I don't always agree with everything Jerry says as well. So I hope, Perry, if you're listening, you'll, you'll take my comments in the spirit of, you know, that they're intended. So I'm a bit reluctant to choose markets on the basis of expected performance. And we talked about this in the podcast before, because I've talked about this issue as a retail trader that we keep touching on again and again, whereby I don't have enough capital to trade all the markets I want, because I don't have the million, millions and millions of dollars in my personal account, or the billions of dollars that I used to trade when I was you know, at AHL. So the question is, how do you select those markets? And as I've said, I'm actually working on a, a way to try and do that more systematically. But of course, you know what, what Perry is suggesting is a systematic way of doing it, which is to use recent performance effectively as, a, as an indicator to, to select markets. And by sheer coincidence, I've actually just literally yesterday put a blog post up testing not Perry's idea exactly but a similar idea where you essentially optimize your portfolio of markets and you pick the markets implicitly you end up picking the markets that have the strongest forecasts which would mean the strongest trends so it, it's probably a bit more complicated than a straight 60-day rule you know you could argue more more open to over optimization but I had very high hopes of, of this if this working but the title of my blog post is you know optimizing small markets blah 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 hyphen epic fail exclamation mark because you know it just didn't work and it was one of those things that was fun to try out and fun to do but it, but in the end this you know i built all this optimization machinery and I, I wrote loads of code and i had a lot of fun writing all this code but then i looked at the account curves in the end and, and actually it was dismal it was doing much worse than the most simple thing you could do which essentially is just to just trade as if you have infinite amounts of money and then effectively round all your positions down to the nearest contract, you know, which isn't ideal, but but it turns out it's better than the trying to overcomplicate things. So I know Jerry's always accusing me of being, being the over-optimizer and trying to make things overly complicated, but I do try and make things as simple as I can be. And only if I see a substantial improvement in my system, which could be P&L, but could be other things as well, will I think it's worth bringing in this complexity. So I'm quite reluctant to choose the instruments in my portfolio that I'm going to trade based on any kind of performance characteristics, whether through something relatively simple like Perry suggests, whether it's something more complicated that I've suggested myself. And when I'm talking about market selection, I'm thinking more like a much more long-term thing where you have a list of markets and perhaps every year you review that. And if, if a market's kind of fallen out of favour a long way, then you would substitute it for another one. But I, I think a regular kind of an optimization on a regular basis. I, I don't think that's such a good idea. And I certainly wouldn't use performance as an input to that. 
because I think that is potentially overfitting. I'm talking about things that we've already talked about, like contract size, but also costs and liquidity. Those and diversification. Those are the things that that I need you would consider when choosing your markets. And those things don't change that often, which means it shouldn't be an you know an optimization happening every day. It should be a regular a review every twelve months, maybe to say right, is this set of say twenty markets the right set for the amount of capital I've got, or maybe because risk or liquidity or costs have changed, should I look at maybe replacing say you know the the two year German bond with something else, for example? Yeah, yeah. So my thoughts on that is I agree with you on 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 the uh, you know I'm not. Also, I'm not embracing the idea of changing markets uh, the way Perry does. But it has. What I will say, because I spoke with him, it has worked really well for him. So, so I won't take anything away from that. But where I think that there are some things that can be done, maybe, and for example, in my own trend-following uh, model, um, there is a little bit of uh, variable position sizing based on how well the markets have done over a long period of time. So there is a little bit of that, but it's it boils down to the position sizing. So that's one way where I do express that. And the other thing is something you and I have talked about before, and I don't want to dive into it again necessarily, but I will just say that I'm more interested in really fundamental and structural diversification across different type of models, parameter sets, and stuff like that. And I do think that there is some things that can be done that is not over-optimizing optimizing it. And where you essentially you let the model evolve, but not in crazy ways, but in kind of kind of controlled ways in terms of how it selects parameters and stuff like that. Because it's, it, you know, again, based on the evidence, i.e. the data and so on and so forth. But let's leave it there. It was a long answer. It's a great question from Robert and a long answer. So let's move on to some of the other questions as we are moving into the conversation here. And this next one is from Kyle. I appreciate you and your team's uh, time you put into the show. Thanks, Kyle. My question surrounds Jerry's least favorite metric, the risk to stop. I was wondering if you ever looked into the number in any detail, such as does it have any correlation to past or future levels of return or volatility of returns of your model portfolio? For example, if the risk to stop is relatively high, does it indicate you could be in a more or less profitable month or two? Or perhaps it indicates you're in a more volatile period? Or perhaps it's just a mundane indication of your stop level levels? I'm not sure if that's correctly understood. Are about to get updated. So I know this specifically, Kyle, is is relating to the number I mention every week for the trend following model. I will say I've not studied the, the number per se, but I do think that there is probably some observations you can make. And that is when it's really high, obviously that means that the stops are far away from the entry points. And that could, I would say my gut feel is that indicates that at that time, at least performance is probably pretty good because the trends, the markets are moving in the direction of the positions, but the stops are not moving up as, as quickly as that. So I think that probably is true. Then you could argue the same at the same time and say, well, if it's really high, is there a higher chance that you're going to get some kind of reversal and, and, and lose money? That may also be because we know at some point when the trends are extended, there's going to be a correction. So, and you could also say that when it's really low, that maybe you could argue that's probably a low, I would call it a low entry point because your stops, I mean, this is what Morris and, and, and Jerry often talk about the difference between open trade 
capital and and closed capital or closed profits. So I think there is something to that as well. But I have not studied it and I wouldn't use it as an indicator or something really important. Now, Rob, I know you don't use stops per se, but have you ever thought about this in a I mean, I suppose arguably the the measure is a measure of risk, right? It's a measure of the current expected risk in your portfolio. Open risk, yeah. And what I have done is something not quite the same, but I've looked at the expected risk of my positions measured in in a kind of more economist way, if you like, as the expected annualized standard deviation of the portfolio based on you know the current correlations and what have you. And there is actually quite a strong relationship between that and the subsequent performance. In other words, when the system is putting on more risk, it means that it sees more good opportunities. And generally speaking, those opportunities play out and you do make more money. And I found if, if I do something which is to basically take that away from the system, if I essentially say to the system, no, you have to have the same level of risk every single day. So say so I'm used 20 right. I, I use 25% as my risk target. What that means right now is my risk can vary between maybe about 8% and about 40% in terms of expected expected risk, but on average it'll be 25. If instead I say no, I want to hold 25% worth of risk every single day. If I do that, then the sharp ratio of my system drops by about a third. Wow. So it's quite a significant effect. By If you take away the ability of the system to target different risk levels, it reduces performance quite considerably. So that means there is information in that in that expected risk number. So it's not just, a, it's an indication both of expected risk, but also of expected profitability. And, you know, I, it's an interesting one because I know there are some CTAs that do use this approach of a fixed risk. It's much more common in the, in say, the equity market neutral space to use that. But certainly in our space, it seems to detract quite significantly from performance. So, so yeah. That, that is super interesting what you just said, because it reminds me of something that is very close to my heart. And that is, you know, at our firm, we actually used a fixed level. So here's a real life uh, example. So we use from 1974 to 2013, a fixed level of risk every single day. And from 2013 and, and to now, it's a variable risk budget depending on other things so clearly it's a research improvement and so i can't say whether it's just the fact that it's floating or whether it's the things we did to make it floating i mean obviously you would assume that's the case but what we've seen actually is very similar to what you've said so what we've seen is that the performance actually has remained the same which is interesting even though it's been a difficult time for trend followers but the volatility has dropped by at least 25%. Right. And so the sharp ratio... The same levels of return. So the sharp ratio so effect has gone up. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Even though I'm not a big fan of the sharp ratio, but yeah. since everybody looks at it, what we wanted to do in our the last 20 years in terms of research journey was really to find a way to improve the journey within trend following. And the way you can do that is to say, okay, how can we deliver the same return but with lower volatility? And so we we do keep an eye on that. And it's very interesting that in real life, we've seen exactly what you described and our clients have had a better experience with trend following since we made that change in 2013. So very interesting. All right, got some good questions from Andreas. Andreas is lives close to where I live, so I know exactly where you're coming from here, Andreas. 
Now, you do say, Andreas, that these questions may mostly be from Jerry and Moritz, but that's not going to stop Rob <laughs> and me from having a go of them. So he- here we go. So if people Does this mean I can do today, my Jerry accent? <laughs> yes, please do your Jerry accent. Then definitely, that could be fun. <laughs> Anyways, but it doesn't mean that Moritz and Jerry won't have a stab at these as well, of course. Anyways, here we go. How to justify a fee structure? What long-term returns would you expect for a short-term CTA with a 3 and 30 fee structure? Any rule of thumb? Yeah, I think we both know who this Andreas is. Yeah, I mean... No, 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 it's not anyone who's written any books. Oh, okay, it's not that Andreas. Okay, (laughs) I mean, 3 and 30, that's pretty meaty, right? It is. It's very meaty. So th- this is a, an in, a, you know, a kind of has been a live topic conversation in the CTA industry probably for well forever, of course, because it's fees, but also the relationship between fees and volatility and, and hence returns, right? So generally speaking, obviously, people are happy to pay high fees if they're going to get huge returns. So you know, let's take uh, the Medallion Fund. I think that's I think something like a forty percent performance fee or something like that. Five and forty, I've heard quoted. I mean, it's not pu- some, some, something along exactly. Those lines. But people are happy yeah. to pay that because you know yeah. those that can get into it, which obviously isn't anybody anymore. And I do remember the debate back in you know now about twelve years ago when Winton reduced their the, the sort of volatility target of their fund but didn't make any change to their feed structure immediately. Although I think since then, obviously, the fees have come down as they have throughout the industry. So, you know, if you're going to be having, you know, a fairly, you know, high return, a high volatility, and, and you charge a certain level of fee, but if, and if you then reduce your volatility and keep your sharp ratio the same and hence reduce your returns, but maintain the same level of fee, then obviously in very simple terms, the ratio of your fee to your return is going to increase. So, your investors are going to not going to be happy. I mean, three and thirty is pretty high. I'm probably best placed to to now answer this question from the position of someone who maybe would be thinking of investing in a CTA rather than from you know the other side of the coin. So you know, I, I would be expected to see very good returns indeed for that for that kind of fee structure because that's you know for the, in CTA terms that's really rich. You know, I, I don't think there are any large CTAs charging that kind of money uh, any certainly anymore. I think I mean AHL used to have quite a high management fee. I think, you know, going way back, I think it may have been like effectively around 4 or 5%, but I don't think they ever charged a 30% performance fee. So I would probably expect to see, for example, you know, no down years and maybe, you know, an average of, of at least 15% a year, which is pretty, that because that's to be pretty damn good returns, right? And if someone can do that, then maybe I'd happily hand over 3 and 30, but I'm not sure there are many people out there who could do that, right? No, right. I mean, so, I mean, I, I like the way you framed this, right? Because first of all, when Andreas asked, what long-term returns would you expect? I mean, first of all, I would say from a short-term CTA, there are very few short-term CTAs who have done well. If you look at the short-term traders index, it's done not very well, frankly. So, so the first thing is to say, I'm not sure you can say what kind of returns you expect from a short-term CTA. I mean, because there are you know, a couple that have done well. And when I say done well, I mean, maybe, maybe 10% net of fees for 20 years. That would be a good result, I think, in the short-term space. It would be a good result in general, but I think there's a couple of longer-term CTAs who have done, a, you know, better than that. I certainly know one. So that's the first thing I, I would say is that finding a short-term CTA that can deliver a high return in itself, even with normal fees, is difficult. Now, the 3 and 30, I agree with Rob here, that it seems rich to me. But you could also argue, and I think that's a fully valid argument, to say, well, actually, 
it's about the net return. It doesn't really matter whether they charge you one in 20 or, you know, one in zero or whatever. You shouldn't really buy them for their fee structure. You should buy them for the net return to deliver to their clients. And this is also why I've always, I mean, I mean, I do like the performance fee side of things. I do think that if anything, pay people well and the performance fee, not so much on the management fee, if I had to choose myself, not because we at Don have a zero and 25 fee structure. That's not the reason. The reason is, I think there needs to be an alignment between the interest of the investor and the interest of the manager. And if you pay someone just a flat management fee with no performance fee, there is no incentive for the manager to do well, to do research, to improve. All they need to do is to raise more assets. So in general, I'm not in favor of that. And I would not really, I should. you should never say never, but I can't think of why I would invest with a manager like that, even though I know institutions love it because it looks cheap. But I think you get what you pay for, frankly, in our world. So yeah. anyways. There's one, one more thing I'd add, which is... To- to put my kind of statistician's hat on. So, you know, net return, absolutely, you should look at. But, you know, you've got to bear in mind that net return is composed of two things, a pre-cost return and a cost. The cost is known with certainty. The pre-cost return, you don't know. You don't know what it's going to be. All you can do is is look at the back test and, and any kind of qualitative information you have about the manager to make you think whether it's likely he'll get those kinds of returns in the future. So that is one reason why it may make more sense to... Because if you say, well... I've got 10 CTOs I could invest in. I've no reason to believe they could perform differently in the future. Therefore, I'm going to just pick the cheapest one. That's probably a rational thing to do when you're looking at the management fee. Of course, performance fee is different because, you know, you're not going to pay the performance fee unless they make money. So I'm a bit wary, for example, because in the the long-only investment world, there are kind of active managers still charging like 150 basis points for long-only funds, which frankly is ridiculous. And you hear financial advisors justify it saying, well, you know, it doesn't matter what level of cost you pay because, you know, it's net returns that matter. That's true. But on the other hand, you know, the costs are predictable and the the pre-cost returns are not. And to expect a you know, an active passive equity, sorry, an active long and the equity manager to overcome that kind of cost win headwind year after year is pretty heroic. So anyway, that's enough. Yeah, absolutely. So the next question from Andreas is headed relentless research versus dollar cost averaging a CTA or broad global equity index. Many investment shops I follow and appreciate, e.g. Cambria, Newfound, Resolve, uh, RA, I'm not sure who that is, AQR and Alpha Architect. Research, spend massive res- time. Research associates. Yeah. Okay. Spend massive time optimizing their models or come up with new offerings and still don't achieve higher returns and overpromise reducing downside volatility than a simple dollar cost averaging strategy in a broad based equity index or a CTA. What's all the activism for? Why search for the holy grail? I picture laid-back Jerry with ample free time and a set of simple rules versus always busy Rob, the <laughs> professor, with too many variations and running hundreds of back tests. Uh, well, let's get into that one, Rob. I mean, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I, I suppose one 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 difference is I actually enjoy you know, doing all this research and running all these back tests. And even though, for example, I've described this week, I've done a whole heap of research, spent many hours on it. And in the end, it didn't work. And actually, you shouldn't expect 
every piece of research to work at all. And one of the, you know, I, I quite like writing blog posts saying, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, because there's too much of a bias for people to, to, to show you only the research that's worked, which means, you know, you can argue they're cherry picking. And, and that's particularly a problem in academia, because it's very hard to get a paper published in a prestigious journal saying, you know, I've done all of this research and found no results whatsoever. <laughs> but people don't want to read that. So so that that's an important part of the research process. But yeah, I do it because I enjoy it. But I, I do it fully knowing that the, the gains over a very simple model will be at best marginal. And uh, I mean, some of the research I'm doing because I, you know, around optimizing over a small portfolio, for example, I wouldn't have to do that if I was running a bigger CTA like, like Jerry is. I've had all of that money. So, you know, that that's one reason why I'm doing perhaps some of that research. But it's true, yeah, that, that you can mostly get by with, with stuff that, that's very simple. And you can get gains from working on it and making it more complex, but there's decreasing marginal returns to those gains. So, you know, I, I like to do a very simple exercise, which is, I say, we'll start with a the simplest possible model that I can set up in my system, which would just be a single moving average crossover trading a single market. The expected chart ratio of that model is perhaps 0.24, something like that in the back test. If I then start to add other moving average crossovers, I can increase that gradually. And if I then add, say, a carry rule, it increases a bit more because that's a different kind of strategy that's, you know, convergent rather than divergent. So that brings in a lot of diversification. But then beyond that, actually, it's quite hard to see a meaningful improvement in the system. So I could add another and I have added another, you know, five different ways of measuring trends and breakouts and some intra-asset mean reversion, all of this kind of stuff. Um, but the improvement from the, the simple kind of, say, three moving averages plus carry is very small. It's very small indeed. And then if I throw in more instruments, but trading the same simple system, I do actually get quite a big improvement in, in, in performance. And that, you know, that if you are going to spend time doing stuff, you should spend time adding instruments rather than necessarily making your model more complicated. So so yeah, it is, it's very hard to beat simplicity. And that's why, going back to the previous discussion, you shouldn't pay too much money for complexity, right? Because complexity is never worth as much as, as worth as much as you usually charge for. but hang on because i need to stop you there please do i've always felt i've always felt two things firstly i, I agree with what I mean, you know, most of what you said there but i've always felt that trend following is indeed trial and terror i mean you need to find all the things that doesn't work before you find the things that work yeah and this is why the point when we say yeah let's keep it simple well finding out how we do it in a simple way that's what requires all the work and that's actually the difficult part to me, uh, the lazy part is probably to make things complex. So so when you said just before, yeah, don't pay too much for simplicity, that's another kind of simplicity in my view than actually people who have done a lot of work to find kind of the essence or the core yeah. that makes it look simple and makes it robust and makes it work. Then people who just take a simple solution, they buy a book and they say, yeah, this is what we're going to do. I wouldn't pay much for that, but I certainly would pay a lot of money for things that are well-researched and where they have found a way to distill the complexity into something that is simple. And I'm sure you would agree with yeah, that. Yeah, I think a good analogy here would be like if you see someone wearing like a really nice suit, it's a very simple, elegant piece of clothing. And, and actually, it, it look, it's, you know, there's, it's complete, it's not like a, sort of a, a very fancy kind of very fashionable garment with all kinds of stuff like it's very simple but it's perfection in the simplicity right and actually requires a huge amount of work 
and a huge amount of experience and skill to produce that thing that look, looks so simple and elegant. So yeah, there is that. And actually, although, you know, Jerry is always, and people was mocking me about how complicated my system has, is, is and all this kind of stuff. Actually, what my system is, is an aggregation of lots of very simple things. And each of those things individually is extremely simple. So, you know, I don't have, for example, you know, anything non-linear in there. I don't have any very fancy optimization or any of this kind of stuff that, that, that's in there. It's not doing any kind of daily optimization as we've discussed. So actually, compared to an awful lot of the kind of quant hedge fund world, my system would be considered you know, tri- trivially simple. And in fact, it amuses yeah. me when I get reviews on Amazon from people who are obviously much cleverer than me who say, oh, this book taught me nothing. It's far too simple and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and I'm thinking, well, well, great. But, you know, it's actually, you know, identifying the the small, the, you know, the, the set of simple things you need to use is actually quite tricky and requires quite a fair amount of experience. Yeah. And that's why I try and yeah. get across my book. So, so, yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, you can... Even a simple system still needs attention, right? In terms of re- no, no, making, just checking, checking it, not that, not changing it necessarily every single year, but at least sort of checking every year that it's performing as you expect it to. And, and considering, for example, well, this mark, as we discussed earlier, things like market selection are important because things change. You know, you know, when interest rates got very low, it became very expensive to trade the short end of the, say, the euro dollar futures curve. So actually, it was prudent to make a change to the system and, and move further around the curve. Just to take one example of the sort of thing you need to do on a regular basis without necessarily doing loads and loads of research. Yeah, and but I do think, I mean, I, I do think Andreas has a point in saying that there are certainly people out there, I'm not referring to the names that you mentioned necessarily, Andreas, because I, I think they're all very well-respected people in our industry. But it's true, sometimes you find people that either do too much optimization, always trying to change things and all of that, which I don't think necessarily is a good thing, but also just want to make it sound like it's more complex than it really is because that's a great narrative. So anyways, interesting interesting question from you, Andreas, but you got two more, so let's continue this journey, Rob. Next question is headed, personal shop ratio or happiness? How much time per day do you spend for a running your CTA program? B, optimizing the program. C, reading business-related material. D, enjoying free time. Tom Basso, as an example, spend around 50 minutes a day and is then off playing golf, cooking, and dancing. So how much dancing are you getting done? Uh, I mean, my, my wife will tell you that one of the few things that, that she dislikes about me is that I'm an absolutely terrible dancer. So there we go. So in terms of actually running my system, 15 minutes sounds about right, actually. So it's literally a question just basically looking at um, a bunch of emails my system sends me and making sure there's nothing in there that's surprising that there's a little bit of manual work around the way for example i handle futures roles i actually trigger those manually although the system does all the trading automatically so there's a little bit of work around that there's a little bit of work around when prices come in that are unexpected so again i have a manual filter so if, if a price is moved by an awful lot then it will say well this looks like an error can you just manually check it before it goes into the database and is used to generate a signal. And then there's, there's the kind of ma- ongoing kind of what I call code maintenance of, you know, the sorts of things that I'm sure Tom has someone, pays someone to do, but I have to do myself. So that 15 minutes probably isn't far off, actually, in terms... Then there's probably... there's un- Then there's what I'd call system improvement work, which could be research. It could be improving the code. So not changing, you know, adding new functionality to it or things like that. Implementing new kinds of training systems or new kinds of ideas. 
it's a tricky one because sometimes I would, could spend all day doing that and sometimes I, I don't do any of that. So, But on average, let's say over a long period of time, I'd probably spend an average of maybe three, three or four hours a day doing that, I'd, something like that. I spend almost no time reading, what was it, business-related material? Yeah, I mean, cooking and playing golf. <laughs> I spend a bit, I, I do, I mean, I do read books, I've read, you know, I've reread one of Perry's books recently, for example, I do read, I do probably spend half an hour a day maybe re reading in general and some of that's fiction, but some of that's kind of stuff you could argue is not directly related to trading, but kind of economics and stuff like that. So I could probably spend, get away with spending only an hour a day And that would be like doing the 15 minutes plus a certain minimum amount of code. And then I could spend the rest of the day playing golf. If I did play golf, which I don't, I'm more into sailing and cycling. I'm going sailing actually after we finish today, Niels, you'd be pleased to know. Sure. But, but yeah, I don't, because I've already said I actually enjoy doing this other stuff and I'm effectively doing it, you know, for my own personal pleasure and amusement. No one's paying me to do it. It probably will add to my bottom line of my trading system. But as we've already discussed, actually, You know, I'm probably not going to be improving things that dramatically and, and it's not necessarily worth doing on an hourly basis if you look at it like that. But it's something, you know, this is, I'm weird and I'm sad. I actually enjoy, <laughs> I actually enjoy, you know, financial research. So in, in a way, that's my golf. That's my cooking, you know, to, to an extent, although I have other hobbies as well. So, And I think, you know, I think that is actually an important point because I think that the people who really want to excel really at anything, one, they should really love what they do because you're going to end up spending a lot of hours doing it. I think someone like a Tom Basso, he's obviously in a completely different, you know, whereabouts in his life. He's had his business back then. He wasn't only spending 15 minutes for sure. I mean, he would be doing it full time and probably more than a normal work day. So it's hard to compare. You can... I mean, you should really just compare people like like Rob, where essentially they're just managing their own money, but they're choosing to do it through trend following and system and so on and so forth. Of course, my my life is completely different. I, I work for a firm, but what I can say is that in terms of running my own systems that I keep up with every single day, absolutely, that can be done in 15 minutes. And even if I was at a, at a point where I would have to send off the orders to a broker and get them back like Moritz does... It it doesn't add a lot of time to that. It can all be automated. But it took a long time and cost a lot of money to get to that point. So don't misunderstand it as being super easy or not having spent a lot of time getting to that. So anyways, enough of the golfing, cooking and dancing. Rob, last question. Who are the classic trend followers still out there? On the podcast, you guys often hold back with names. And so, of course, this is a little bit sort of minded towards me, Andreas. And it's true. I mean, we don't throw around a lot of names. Having said that, you could say that most of the names that I'm going to mention to you now, again, have actually been guests on the podcast. So it's certainly people we have a lot of respect for. But I think sort of week by week the reason maybe we don't spend too much time discussing other people's performance is one they're not on the show so they can't really defend themselves if we have anything to say that they don't agree with and secondly we don't know 100% exactly what they do so we shouldn't really speak for them either but anyways here is my list of people I think are still doing core trend or classic trend following at least so they have programs that probably do this And these are, of course, names that, I mean, I have a lot of respect for them, first of all. But secondly, they're names of people who have at least $50 million in the program. So I'm not, I don't have a, a full view of the entire universe. There are so many of them. But here are some names and then Rob can agree or 
or disagree uh, with the names. But I think people like Alpha Simplex, where Katie Kaminsky is, I think that they are predominantly classic trend, I would imagine. Aspic, Marty Lurik has been on the podcast as well. They have a core trend program. I imagine that's what it does. Campbell and Company, I did have Mike Harris when he was president there. They have a core trend program. So that's probably what they do there as well. Of course, Jerry with Chesapeake, Don that I represent. Yes, absolutely. Drury, Bernie Drury. I think he's still pretty classical trend. Haven't have, have not have him on the podcast, but yeah, I would say so. EMC Capital. Brian Proctor is works at EMC. He's been on the podcast when we had Richard Dennis and Jerry and together for this turtle reunion because they were both, you know, two turtles and and their mentor. I, Sam, we've had Alex Grayson on the show. He's definitely, or I would consider them as classic trend, even though they may have evolved in the last few years. AHL, they have a number of different programs. I'm not entirely sure if any of them are pure trend anymore, but they're certainly predominantly trend, I would imagine. Paul Mulvaney has been around for a long time. He's definitely classic trend. Quantica, I believe they are classic trend or mostly trend, although I know they do different things with the data. So maybe I have to qualify that a little bit, but I think it's trend. Trans trend, we've had Harold on many times. Definitely trend following. And then also Wilson has been around for a long time. I imagine that they are still doing, at least in one of their programs, pretty much trend. So those are the names that I can think of that I would call classic trend. Andreas, so that's that would be my list. Anyone I missed? Um, well, yeah, I mean, obviously, the, most of the names there, I, I, I agree with definitely. AHL, AHL's core core fund is probably um, now at 70% trend following, 30% carry and other things. So it's still pretty much trend following, I would say. The other ones I'd mentioned are Systematica, which used to be Blue Trend, also in your country. They have a, a trend following program. Winton, of course, we've talked about their drift away from trend following, but but it's my understanding that they do have a they do have a they trend do have a now, trend or, or a focus. Trend yeah, so program. they kind of took trend out of their main program and they brought in a new program that's just trends. So that's understood. And uh, I'm going to mention a, a slightly newer shop, if that's okay. And that's Florin Court, who are part. They've been on the podcast. Yeah, they've been on the yeah. podcast, and they're they're part of Brummer, yeah. of course. And and they're they're uh, all uh, you know ex AHL guys and good good friends of mine. And they they're focusing on less kind of conventional markets, but the approach they're taking in these markets is still mainly focused around trend following. Yeah. So good yeah. point. Cool. All right, let's move on. Here's a question from Red Wall. Based on your latest article, Rob, so another one that you paid for here, Rob. <laughs> Based on your latest article, Rob, on small portfolios and the order one on what you call the ugly hack, what would you consider as the account size minimum where it would be beneficial to implement your own trend-following model instead of investing in one of the funds? I'm sure you know what this means since you wrote the post. I think we've already kind of covered this, haven't we, earlier? I think we yeah. have, but... Yeah, I mean, so yeah. somewhere the answer is somewhere between probably 100000 and a million dollars. Let's leave yeah. it at that. I'm sure we <laughs> yeah. will have enjoyed the first part of, yeah. our, of, the, of this particular question. Yeah. Here is a, a question from Ricardo. What are your thoughts on dynamic hedging using a trend-following signal to get in and out of risky assets in long-only, in a long-only context, a number of papers have been written about it and the outcomes are quite strong and statistically significant. Yeah, I mean, we sort of touched on this earlier, didn't we, again? So just to kind of maybe expand my answer slightly more. So, okay, ideally, you want to be able to go long and short assets when you're Tron following and that will produce you, you know, an account curve that's, if you've got a diverse portfolio, that looks very nice. 
If you restrict that and say, well, you can only go short, sorry, you can only go long, apologies, then obviously you are going to be giving up some of that performance because you know, you're not going to be able to make money when markets are falling. You're just going to be able to kind of hold your you know, your account size flat. But you will still probably, the back test says, do better than you would do just by holding a you know, straightforward kind of long, long only portfolio. And of course, the papers have been written about this. You've got people writing books about it, like Jewel Momentum, obviously the very famous book. There are many other books written about this. And, and in my own second book, Smart Portfolios, I also you know dis- discuss this idea of using momentum to time your exposure in a long only portfolio. So, so yeah, it probably makes sense to do it, but you know, just be usual caveats apply. Think about the frequency you're doing at doing it at. So you know, probably don't try and go for trends that are too short in length. You know, so. I, for example, I use roughly a 12-month time period for rebalancing my portfolio in this way. Shorter than that, potentially, the, the, you know, you're going to run into the trends being dominated by short-term mean reversion, and also it's probably going to be become expensive. And you know, just be wary as well how kind of aggressive you are with that sort of flicking the you know the position on and off. And I think that's especially true because whereas you know I run my trend-following portfolio with the knowledge that I have a long-only portfolio alongside it. If your long-only portfolio is also being run as a momentum portfolio, you are kind of placing quite a big bet on momentum working, right? And we love momentum. We love trend following. Of course we do. But we're always going to acknowledge that there are other sources of return out there and a good portfolio should have, you know, lots of different strategies, lots of different sources of return. And there was, you know, there's a very good podcast a few weeks ago, Niels, where, you know, where, you know, you had a good conversation with, Jason. And exactly, Jason, Jason Burke yeah, about, Jason about that exact topic. So yeah, it, it, it's a good thing to do. But if, say, that's all you're doing, if you've just got a long-only portfolio of ETFs and you're using trend following to, to rebalance it, you know, I would be a little bit wary of kind of going fully on or off in that portfolio and say, you know, taking out all of your equity exposure just because you've got negative momentum. Just be wary of overdoing that with that. Yeah, I enjoyed my conversation with Jason. I actually recommend people go back and listen to it. And there's a funny comment about that conversation because I got an email yesterday from the lady who does the transcription. I don't use a, a robot to do the transcription. I, I like to get it done as accurately as possible. So anyway, she comes back to me and said, did you speed up the recording on this particular episode with Jason? Because there were like 25% more words in the same amount of time that we normally record in. And I said, no, I'm pretty sure we didn't do that. But I did re- I did notice at the time that Jason spoke incredibly quick. I really had to pay attention. So it came up on that. But it's a great episode. He's a great guest. So, yeah. Question from Mihail or Mihail. I didn't know much about finance, but one day I found the Top Traders Unplugged YouTube channel in my recommendations. I watched a video with Robert Carver on your show and decided to buy his first two books. The books were great, but I believe it will take me some time to really understand some of the concepts used in systematic trading and asset allocation. In his books, Rob Rob talks about position sizing, volatility targeting, cost diversification across timeframes, asset classes, and trading rules. He focused focuses on trend following rules, but also explains carry trading rules. This is like a good. I, I know. I mean, I, I don't actually. know how much I paid this I mean, guy for this question, but this was this yeah, one. Yeah. This one <laughs> the most expensive one, yeah. I think. Here are my questions to you guys. 
when we are constructing a classical cross-sectional momentum portfolio, we sort instruments by their momentum and then go long the top ones and go short the bottom ones. We go long short the top bottom instruments, even if the momentum is negative slash positive. Correct me if I'm wrong. Given the importance of volatility targeting, why don't we sort the instruments based on their volatility adjusted momentum and stay in cash when momentum top to bottom of your portfolio is negative slash positive question mark. Have you tested this kind of approach? What are your thoughts on this? Is it possible to use the systematic approach described in Robert's books to less liquid assets, specifically real estate? Okay, so the, the first thing is I, I do actually use uh, momentum normalized by volatility. Uh, that, I actually do that. It kind of makes sense because, you know, we're talking about bond, bonds and stocks rebalancing in a long-only context. And if you think about it, so a, a 5% drop in the bond markets is, you know, as significant, if if not more significant than, a say, a, a 10% drop in the equity market. So it makes sense to to normalise that for volatility. So cross-sectional momentum in, with this sort of classic, it's called portfolio sorting in the academic literature. It's not something I use myself. It's used more commonly in the long-short equity world. So, you know, you can kind of think of trend following the way we do it as essentially being like two different things happening at the same time. One of those things is a a kind of asset class decision. So should I be long or short equities? And the other thing is a kind of, well, what should I do within the asset class? So should I be long S&Ps and short FTSE and so on and so forth? So you can actually decompose a, a kind of classic CTA portfolio into those two sources of return. The absolute return from being long or short the asset class and the relative return from being relatively long or short within the asset class. So so what you're describing there in, in, in the question was a way of kind of a different way of kind of combining those two things, which is to say, well, I want to be long or short, you know, equities, but I also don't want to be, you know, going against the overall trend of the market. So it's kind of a another way of mixing together those two ideas. And it can get a bit complicated. I mean, the, the advantage of the CTA approach is really simple. You look at each market individually and you say, do I think this market's going to go up or down? And then you make a bet on that. And then, you know, a fancy quant can look at the portfolio and say, oh, well, it looks like you have a, a positive beta in equities and therefore I can decompose your returns into a, an asset class timing beta and uh, a cross-sectional beta because you're also making relative bets on these different equities and jerry will just go you know well yeah whatever uh, <laughs> that that's just what my 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 breakout my stop losses say you know go away with your, your fancy maths but that's effectively what what jerry's doing even if he doesn't he's not doing it explicitly and neither am i for that matter so yeah i mean it would work i mean i'm not a huge fan of of the cross-sectional momentum because that's just not the kind of trading i do and as for the real estate I mean, that's kind of, right. that's pretty crazy, right? I mean, I guess you could use momentum on real estate, but one, one of the things uh, I, I say a lot is the more expensive something is to trade, the slower you should trade it. And of course, real estate is really expensive to trade. I mean, you're talking about about huge costs. So you'd be needed to be looking at doing it, looking at very long trends. Of course, the very long trend in real estate prices is up. So in simple terms, you should just be long real estate, I guess. But but yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I guess there are real estate. Funds yeah, there are real estate. He, apply, yeah. but that wouldn't yeah. they wouldn't be so illiquid, would they? You know, if you were trading a real no. estate ETF. So. Yeah, no, that's fine. Appreciate it. Last question in is from Elder. I'm trying to answer a very reasonable question. A friend asked me about the more limited diversification opportunities from futures relative to cash markets. There are, of course, a lot more of the latter. My 
answer was, it was either hard or expensive or both to trade certain asset classes through the cash markets. Example of these are commodities, STIR, stir, what's the short-term interest rate futures like euro dollar, Short-term you're right, you're right that's, Thank you for that. And volatility. Do people agree with this answer? If I recall correctly, Jerry in the podcast is a big fan of the cash markets, which presumably is why he also prefers to trade slowly as a diversifier. Yeah, I mean, if you just think about all the different things we can trade with futures. So if we take stirs, for example, there isn't really the cash market doesn't really exist, right? I mean, with the old system of LIBOR, it was supposed to be based on an interbank lending market. But that interbank lending market was never really very active. And as we know now, people probably just mostly made the numbers up. So, you know, you know theoretically, if you were to participate in the, the cash stir market, you'd need to be a bank. You know, so that's clearly possible for most people to trade most, you know, um, commodities like grains and oil and these things in 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 the cash or the spot markets. You know, you need to have things like warehouses and the capability to to live, to you know to accept deliveries. You need to have freezers to store your lean hogs in or your frozen orange juice in and stuff like that. So again, that's not really practical. So we're kind of left with the financial assets. So obviously, stock indices. We could trade the underlying stocks. We have talked at length about. The fact, you know, both here and on the clubhouse about how it's more difficult to do that. It's more complex. You know, you've got to worry about shorting, cost of borrowing, all that kind of stuff. But obviously, there is a diversification benefit there versus the index. You know, Jerry's right with respect to that. Then you've got the the, the, the cap bond markets, if you like. So that they're, they're quite tricky to trade. I mean, the bond markets are quite fragmented, and especially the corp- corporate bond markets are not really that open to to re- retail investment. The you know, so that's potentially a problem and then you've what are we left with volatility so of course you could just trade options and options are kind of options are the cash market for for the volatility indices right but they're not really a ca- it's weird to think about options as being a cash market because of course they're a derivative aren't they sure. so so yeah i mean one of the reasons we trade futures is is that within the vast majority of cases with the possible exception of equities it's generally easier to trade the future than it is to trade trade the spot or the underlying now what would be the advantages of trading the spot or the underlying well, okay, we, with stocks, for example, and with bonds, I guess, you could get more diversification. I forgot to mention FX. So obviously, as retail right. traders, we can trade FX, but it tends to be quite expensive to do so as a retail trader because of funding costs and things like that. But anyway, but as, as institutions can trade FX quite cheaply. So yeah, we could get more diversification where we're trading the future as an index and we can investing in the constituents of that index would give us more diversification. So that potentially is better. The other thing we can do, and, and Moritz would, would mention this, I'm sure, is you can do you can trade the cash markets sometimes more a better ter- on better terms than the futures markets. If we take Bitcoin as an example, it's better to go long Bitcoin in the cash space than in the future space because there was a big it's disappeared now, I think, or we've got a lot smaller. I think a it's lot smaller. Gone so Moritz has made his money and walked off with his, his huge pile of money from his Bitcoin arbitrage. But you can sometimes it makes usually that the future and the spot are fairly priced in terms of the inventory and things like that. But sometimes you get like supply squeezes and weird things happening. And then can it can make sense to either trade the spot outright instead of the future or to do the spot futures arbitrage. So that sometimes happens. But Generally speaking, you know, it's more convenient and nicer to trade the future. I, I guess the other example of where you can diversify and it's kind of not exactly the same, but in terms of volatility, in terms of options trading, 
that's again an example of something that's a good thing to do and is a good strategy. And of course, Niels, you're involved in that space yourself. But again, you know, as you'll know, there's a fair amount of work up front and ongoing in terms of pulling in prices and constructing volatility surfaces and worrying about, you know, the moneyness of various options versus what you actually want to trade and, and stuff like that. So, so yeah, it's uh, an, an example of something that's quite a lot of work, but brings some benefit, I guess, in the same way that all the extra research that I do is quite a lot of work, but brings brings some benefit. But the benefits aren't huge, which is my, you know, unless they're quite big firms and they're willing to invest a lot in these markets, even most you know, medium-sized CTAs tend to focus just on futures because it makes their life much simpler. I mean, but when I was at AHL in the fixed income space, we we did used to trade things like credit default swaps. We used to trade things like cash bonds. We used to trade interest rate swaps. These aren't cash markets per se, of course. They're just a different kind of derivative and not a future. That brought us diversification and some, some small benefit to the portfolio, but there was a, a relatively large operational cost compared to just trading futures. Yeah. No, absolutely makes perfect sense. Those were the questions. You've got a couple of topics, and I don't know whether you want to bring them up. We've been going for a while, but if there's something that you wanted to bring up, one was to do with fitting, uh, the idea of fitting per instrument and some comments that Jerry had made. And also that you actually referred refer to uh, the conversation with Jason about CTAs not having a story. So if there's yeah, anything you I want think to have... We'll, we'll park the Jerry fitting. I think that's that okay. should be a head-to-head head to head debate. I think that this, this str- okay. slightly strange thing where head head I say something in the podcast and he comes on the week after and, and says, well, I don't agree with Rob. And then I come on a few weeks later and say, well, I don't agree with Jerry. I think uh, mate, we will, we'll try and set up another head-to-head later this year, I think, to cool. so bash these things out. But yeah, no, I, I mean, the conversation with Jason, I've already mentioned it, was really, I found it really interesting and very, you know, a very good d- discussion And from him, although he does speak quite quickly, as you say, and, and makes me feel better because I often think I speak a bit too quickly. But you made this interesting comment about the fact that one thing that Bitcoiners have done really well is is the narrative of Bitcoin, and, and they've pulled a lot of people in through this narrative. And that as CTAs, we've really struggled to kind of pull together a compelling narrative about why you should invest in CTAs. And, uh, you know, that for a while, there was this idea of, cri- you know, crisis alpha, of course, that, that famous term. And But I've never really fully bought into that because, you know... I think it's a little bit disingenuous and it kind of puts you in the corner with the, you know, as Jason was saying, with the, you know, the more pure kind of crisis alpha, which would be things like buying out of the money options, kind of pure tail risk type protection, you know, you know, so to the CTAs, you know, the, the, the crisis alpha narrative never really, I think, and I think people kind of saw through that as well. And especially in March last year, when obviously the CTAs generally did not do, you know, extraordinarily well in March, which you would have expected from pure crisis alpha. You know, so I think we can put that narrative back in the drawer. But I think it's really what what I think is compelling to me personally is something that we talk about a lot on the podcast, and we seem to talk about it more and more every week, and that's inflation. Now, mm-hmm. it strikes me as a fit, quite a nice, simple narrative, which is this. Well, what do you want to be doing in an inflationary environment? Well, you want to be buying things that are going up in price. That's what a CTA does, right? In an inflationary environment, you know, Commodities go up in price, we'll buy those. Maybe gold goes up in price because people perceive it as an inflation hedge. We'll be, we'll be buying that. And you know, if stocks are going up in price because of inflation, great, we'll buy them. Maybe they won't go up in price because inflation's too volatile. Bonds will almost certainly go down in price. Well, great, we can short those. That's fine. So inflation is this kind of, it's a big macroeconomic trend of the exact kind of thing that, that, that CTAs should be able to exploit better than any other type of strategy. 
So that's the first thing. We've got the narrative, but we've also got the evidence, right? Because if you go back to the last kind of significant inflationary period, which of course of the 1970s, well, if I look at my back tests, you know, I wish I was I was 50 years younger because the, you know, the, they look really good in the 1970s and they're still pretty good since then. But, you know, the 70s are really stand out as a fantastic period for, for trend following. And also we have the live track record, of course, of the firms like, like ourselves that were around in the 1970s that, that were make, making money then. So that's my presence to the industry, the narrative of inflation. Yeah, no, I mean, I first of all, let me concur with the the point about the 70s, right? As you said, we at Don were actually around back then. And I can certainly say when I look at the track record, 77, 78, 79, all of those years were great trend following years for us. And I do agree that I think inflation presents an opportunity. I'm not sure that I would say it's the narrative but it presents an opportunity because you could say the same about deflation. You, you know, the argument would be, would be the same. If you expect deflation, you should get some things that you could sell. And of course, CTAs would have the same argument. Yeah, if it's going to go down in price, we're going to sell it. So, but I, I do think inflation is something that we haven't seen for a while. And therefore, it is coming up in the general press much more as something to fear or at least be, be aware of. And then on top of that, we can mount our stories and our evidence, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if it's going to work in terms of the narrative, but I think the evidence will continue to support the positive influence that trend following has on any portfolio, really. And hopefully, you could say that we will get back to maybe above average returns in pure trend, because that's what we've seen in the past when it comes to inflationary periods. So I would expect that could happen again. And that would, of course, change the interest in what we do for sure. So... Anyways, thanks for that, Rob. That was a good comment. Quick review of performance. Speaking of that, BTOP50 index is still down for the month of June, 1.3%, up 5.8% for the year. The SOCGEN CT index uh, down 1.45% for the month and uh, up 6.09% for the year. SOCGEN trend index down 2.65% for the month, up 6.89% for the year. The short-term traders index, also SOCGEN, down 35 basis points for the month, up 1.16% for the year. As mentioned before, the trend following in, uh, the trend barometer, my trend barometer is at the moment neutral, lower end of the neutral zone. So we'll see where it ends at month end. So that was a quick run through of the industry. Anything in terms of Anything else you want to add, Rob, at this stage? I know you're going to go away for a couple of months. Yeah. And so people will be eagerly awaiting <laughs> your return to the podcast, I think, in September yeah, or, or think... August, September time. Anything you want to leave yeah, as well? Yeah, no, actually, so the piece that you sent me, Neil, is about this company called MicroStrategy. So this relates to my, my favorite topic of, of Bitcoin. Ah, so you mean Michael Saylor, yeah. the Bitcoin enthusiast yeah. who owns uh, a stake in a company called MicroStrategy? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, it's confusing for me as well because I actually own shares in a UK company called MicroFocus, uh, and I keep getting them mixed up. So that's a bit confusing. But anyway, so so yeah, so you can put the uh, the link in the show notes. But basically, what this guy did was pivot his company from being, you know, I guess some kind of tech company to, to being basically a company that just owns a massive number of Bitcoins. And I just find it absolutely extraordinary that, that this is even legal. And, you know, I, I guess it, it's one of those things that it'll be fine as long as it works. But if it doesn't work, then I hope he's got some good lawyers because um, I'm sure he's going to get a lot of stockholders wanting to sue him. But yeah, it's I, I do feel that 
we live we're obviously living in fairly crazy times and every now and then even even you, you know i become kind of immune to the the craziness and but every now and then like with a few couple months ago when there was this you know an nft was sold for tens of millions of dollars every now and then i still get this love what really seriously this even you know things are crazy but if this is happening you know a guy has just pivoted his company and bought loads of bitcoin and everyone's like yeah, that's completely fine. So yeah, I, I would recommend reading that, definitely. It was quite interesting. Yeah, I'll have to dig it out and send it to our producer yeah. so that yeah. they can go in the show notes. It was an article, and of course, you people will say it's biased, whatever it is. I don't know, but it was an interesting kind of a historical account for, for his involvement in the Bitcoin industry. Oh, by the way, I think that the article says, and this is kind of interesting, is that the average price, he's bought more than 100,000 Bitcoin by now for their own money and for borrowed money when they issue these uh, notes or whatever they're issuing. So he's got a lot of Bitcoins, let's put it that way. And the average price, as far as I remember from the article, is somewhere around 26,000. And of course, today, right now, we're trading at 30,869. So not that far away from that. And it will be interesting if the price goes below that, what happens? I think that could be an interesting time then. And anyways, Moritz is back right. next week from his holiday. So please send your questions, info at toptradersonplug.com so that we can get up to speed what he's doing in the various portfolios, bitcoins, whatever you want to know about. Send us your questions and we will get on that. If you already forgotten, then I can only repeat our big wish is that you would go to iTunes and leave a rating and review because it helps us much more than you can ever imagine from Rob and me. Thanks. Maybe I should just say one more thing, and that is if there is a little bit of irregularity releasing of the podcast the next few weeks is because I will also be traveling, but I will be doing the podcast. But just bear with me if the internet is not as as consistent as it is when I'm back in Switzerland. But anyways, from Rob and me, thanks ever so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.